one of the things I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion is one of the myths is I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. I would ask, do we ever say I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? So it is based on your experiences and who you've had access to that you've created, whether you realize it in your mind, what you think good looks like. But what about veterans and individuals with disabilities? And what about the LGBTQ plus community? And think about all the dimensions of diversity and all the dollars we're leaving out on the table because we're not thinking about how to serve these communities with authenticity and purpose. If there's not that time crunch, then you can just start to get to know talent. And you actually might meet me and say, I didn't actually have a job description in mind. But now I see this gap on the leadership team. And because I've met Mita without the constraints of like, here's her resume and here's the job description, I actually want her to meet more people at the company. And I think I want to create a role around this for her because it's a need for us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, our episode is with Mita Malik. Mita is awesome. And we had promised our audience that we would have more discussions around DEI, and we are now delivering on that promise. I loved our conversation with Mita. I personally learned a ton about how she measures success in the DEI role, why the DEI role isn't set up for success. And then of course, Kelly, you know, me and Colleen, who came on in uh, lieu of you having to, to have some other commitments, we had to get into another argument around meritocracy. It's our favorite conversation. I love the episode. I was bummed to miss it. Mita and I emailed a little bit. And her story on how she got into the inclusion role, Nolan, was very, very cool. And I loved how open she was about that. Going from uh, Unilever, where her CEO had to ask her three times to take that job and what that was like in that journey. And then, of course, on to Carta, where she leads inclusion today. It's an awesome episode. Another thing I'll just really quickly call out is that we've spent $8 billion on diversity training and Mita thinks the ROI has been very low on that. So I can't wait for people to engage and ask questions about that. Um, but overall, this is a continued discussion on DEI and we're going to continue to have this discussion. That's our commitment to you all. So please like subscribe and share with your friends and give us any other feedback that you have. We'll jump in today's interview with Mita in a moment, but quick shout out to HR Brew, the free weekday newsletter that sends the most critical industry knowledge directly to your inbox every day. Totally. It, it's a quick read, HR Brew. It helps me, helps you stay up to date on the industry, the future of work, all that. Especially we're so busy day to day in your own stuff, our own initiatives. We don't really lift our heads a lot. It's a nice snack bite way to stay updated on what's going on. Yeah. So make sure you guys subscribe to an amazing resource or also forward it to members of your team. And you can find the link in the description below. Now let's get into it. Here's the conversation with Mita. All right. Hey, everybody. Super excited to have this conversation today with Mita Malik, who is the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Carta. And then also friend of the show, Colleen McCreary, is joining us as a guest host as Kelly couldn't make it today. So welcome both to the HR Heretics podcast. Yay. Thanks for having me. Exciting. Mita, you came out with a book recently. I'm about 40% of the way through. It is so interesting and I'm learning a ton. Tell us about the book and how it came to be. So the book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, came out last October. And I wrote it four years ago. I wrote it before I joined Carta. And I had a really hard time getting it published. There was a lot of inequities in the publishing world. That's probably another show for another time. But I, like many of you, journal, except I career journal. And so I process, I write down a lot of the lows and highs in my career. And I had taken notes throughout the years of things I had observed. And so I had this idea of wanting to write a book, but wanting to make sure that it was going to be additive because there's so many great books on leadership and diversity, equity, inclusion. What could I do that was different? And as someone who has young children, 
I thought about the bedtime stories I tell my kids at night and what are the stories we tell ourselves in the workplaces. So hence this idea of the myths. And thank you. It's lovely that you're 40% of the way through. I love that. And so that's how it came to be. And then I finally got the book deal and made the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller list, which was amazing and has been getting a lot of great press and accolades. And so to anyone who's trying to write, don't give up. Sometimes when someone else doesn't see an addressable market or there's no market fit, if you see it, go for it. Yeah. Right place, right time too. Totally. Yes. Yes. Well, it's either the best or the worst time to be writing a book on DE&I and getting it published. (laughs) I'm going to say it's the best time. Best time. Well, let's talk about your career in DEI. How did you come about getting into the space? Well, I'll start with my origin story for Marvel fans out there. I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. I was born and raised in the U.S. with my younger brother, and I was the funny-looking dark-skinned girl with a long, funny-looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore. And I was bullied a lot, both verbally and physically by my peers, and I never felt included in the broader community. And I didn't grow up in an Instagram era, so I didn't see myself reflected on cereal boxes, in film, in magazines. And I thought, well, who gets to make those decisions? Like who holds the power of the pen? And so from a young age, I was very interested in that. And so I went into a very long career in marketing and consumer product goods. I'm still considering myself a marketer and passionate storyteller, but really because I was like, inclusion is a driver of the business. I have all these product needs and my friends and community that aren't being met. And why is that? And so really thinking about how diversity representation matters because you're uncovering new insights and products and ideas. And so from there, I actually pivoted to chief diversity officer work and then ended up taking the plunge into tech, which has been really exciting. You had mentioned a story to me in our prep call about you declining the job a few times. Can you tell that story to our audience? Yes. So I was approached by our then CEO to take on this assignment to be the first ever head of DEI. The company did not have a head of DEI. And I had my own biases because I was going to run like, you know, Baby Dove or Lipton or pick a iconic, but like I was a marketer. I was going to run a brand. And I thought, what value is this role? Like, what could I be doing that's different? And it was my younger brother because younger brothers are lovely and annoying. And my brother knows a lot. And he was like, "You, this is your life story. You've always wanted to be a change maker. You think about inclusion as a driver of the business. You know, all these brands I led, it was like, I'm making product. I'm making this blush that doesn't work on my skin tone. We have a campaign that's absolutely not representative of the current demographics of our consumer base in the country. Like I always was thinking about these things. And so, well, he did ask three times. So I did finally say yes, but it was definitely a life-changing decision. And I always say, sometimes people see things in you that you don't see in yourself, that they don't, you don't necessarily think that you're capable of, but they see something in you and the potential for you to do something that you didn't expect. You, you took on that job, much earlier before it sort of had the acclaim and the either very exciting impact that you could have, couldn't have, because people said, oh, that title, I I should listen to that person. I mean, you took it at a time that it was probably crafting your own way. What did you do to really make an impact in a role that was completely undefined as a category at that time? One of the things that was a strength was I was with the company and I had only grown up in the business. I didn't know any different. And so everything to me was connected to the PL. I had led large teams, go to market, campaign ideas, developing concepts. That's how my brain worked. And so to anyone listening, I don't care what you do, look up and pay attention to what your priorities are. Don't miss the town hall. Don't listen to how the CEO's priorities are changing because that impacts whatever we're doing. We're selling something. I don't care what industry you're in. And you have to be selling enough of that something to be able to have people running the business. And so that I think was a really big strength of mine. But also one of the things we did was I called the role. It was the head of DE&I and cross-cultural marketing which I think is still a term that's too early, but it was really this idea I had. It is multicultural marketing, marketing based on ethnicity, 
But what about veterans and individuals with disabilities? And what about the LGBTQ plus community? And think about all the dimensions of diversity and all the dollars we're leaving out on the table because we're not thinking about how to serve these communities with authenticity and purpose. And so people were like, cross-cultural marketing. And so again, I like to pick phrases and words. I was like, that was probably ahead of its time and still is now, but that was the idea. And so I also was sitting on teams, which is what chief diversity officers should be doing. Of course, they're working with the people function and internal processes, but they should also be really tied to the product and service and have a seat at that table to provide a point of view. I love that. It's a really interesting time. It's January 31st of 2024 as we're recording this today. And many companies, especially in tech, are cutting back their efforts on DEI. What's your thoughts and takes on that? So my biggest takeaway is that these roles were never set up for success. I don't even want to bring up the fact that people will say candidates weren't qualified. I'm not going to, well, I said it out loud, but I would say what people are thinking. No, I mean, many of these roles weren't set up for success. They were figurehead roles. They were window dressing, a big title. Maybe they sat on the executive team, but didn't really have any goals or metrics or any decision-making power or authority, or maybe they were buried under the chief people officer, or maybe like two levels below that, but actually had this fancy title, no budgets, no resource, no allocation, any of those things. And so then would you ever set a business up like that? And then whatever happened to like the business you were launching? And like I keep saying, inclusion's a driver of the business. It has to be built into everything you do as a company. And so if you're not thinking about it from that perspective and you're thinking, oh, it's just an event you're doing with an employee resource group, or it's just a pledge we're signing externally, or it is a press conference or a press release. Well, yeah, some of the, yeah. Are those things not things you do? Of course they are, but those aren't going to drive the fundamental change. That's the, the foundation was never there in many of these instances. I want to go back to the cross-cultural marketing comment, because I think it's it's actually very appropriate for right now as well, which is I think DE&I in particular has a very, and you write about this a lot, which I really liked, which is it's very different in the United States than it is thought of sort of in the rest of the world. How do you articulate that in a way to help bring both sort of populations along on the, how we're talking about it in this country is not the same that the rest of our colleagues or friends, or we can be very American centric in a lot of ways. I think tech is one of the worst offenders of that. I'd love to understand how you influence in that space and how you talk about it. So when I think about inclusion, you go back to whatever market you're in, wherever you're operating, there are different dimensions of diversity. They might look wildly and vastly different in America versus another country or the U.S., but it's still that idea of like, who are you not speaking to? Who are you excluding? Who are you leaving behind? Who can you actually be delighting and surprising with something they never expected, product or service? So I think about it from that way. I also think about inclusion tied to productivity. And so let's say, Colleen, you hire me for my genius and expertise, and I'm excited to come to work. Because at the end of the day, most of us are coming to work for a paycheck, and some of us have found our mission. And so I want to be productive. I want to make impact. But guess what happens? I show up at work. People ask me how I speak English so well how I got rid of my accent, where am I really from, ask me about my hair, oh, your lunch is really smelly, you're taking up too much space, you're taking up not enough space. I can go on and on, but it's like these everyday cuts. Michelle Obama talks about it in the Becoming book. It's like these everyday paper cuts, microaggressions that can have, when accumulated, just a devastating impact on someone's sense of self-confidence and self-worth. So what happens to me in the workplace, I was hired to work at hundred percent. Most days I'm working at 50 to 75%. You're not getting the most out of me because I'm inter I'm really reacting and interacting with the things that are happening to me in the environment. So I really hope that more leaders think about that. You're not getting the best out of me. If you can't get the best out of me, you're not going to get the best out of your company. Hey everyone. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. There's a world where your CRM is powerful, easily configured, and deeply intuitive. Adio makes that a reality. Adio is a radically new CRM built specifically for the new era of companies. 
It's flexible, easily configures to your unique data structures, and works for any go-to-market motion from self-serve to sales-led. Adio automatically enriches your contacts, syncs your emails and calendar, lets you create powerful reports, and quickly builds Zapier-style automations. The next era of companies deserves more than a one-size-fits-all CRM with outdated UX. Join OpenAI, Replicate, Eleven Labs, and more. Try Adio instantly at adio.com. That's A-T-T-I-O.com. And tell them Nolan and Kelly from HR Heretics say you. Nolan and I and some others, we did a podcast on diversity a few weeks ago. And one of the things we were really talking about is how do we really measure success of inclusion? Like, what are the metrics that we use? And I came at across from a, you know, hey, as a chief people officer, this is what I did. This is what I looked at. But we all sort of had a different set of metrics, actually. And, we've, you know, it's a, a little bit of a squishy term. I'd love to understand you know, what are the metrics that you think matter? So when you are talking to business leaders that you can really help them understand whether or not you're making progress, do we have an inclusive environment? How do you know that? Ask your people. I always say employees are their forgotten consumer. We spend so much time thinking about who we're going to sell, what, where, when, whom to. And it's like you have employee survey results. Many companies do them. And are you actually using them as insights like marketers would? to like better your product, which is better your culture, or are you burying those? Like, oh, we did it, check the box. But what kind of questions are you asking about what it takes to feel included at work? And do you feel respected and recognized and all of those things? And then tying it to, you know, I find it so interesting when people say to me, what are DEI metrics? What are the metrics? And I'm like, there are no metrics. It's looking at the health of your organization, right? Like you might have metrics on a whole to see how your workforce is composed, what's the composition of the workforce, but looking at attrition and promotion and performance improvement, like looking at all these things that you would look at for your employees and then looking at it by different cuts and segments and population. Exit interview data is God, like how many people actually spend time to look at the exit interview data or do we bury it? If I had five women of color leave my team in the last two months, is anyone asking those questions or are we just asking recruiting to fill those spots? And so there's so many different ways you can be measuring inclusion. And so that's where it can be overwhelming, but start and pick one or two things. Do you have a dashboard? Like, do you, do you think about like creating a dashboard and then looking at that over time and measuring progress? So what I would say is like DEI dashboard cannot be separate. It has to be tied to what the organization is doing, right? Because ha- that's how you build it in. So I'm not going to build a separate. I'm going to say, hey, I work for Nolan, work with Nolan. He's the chief product officer. Let's look at what's happening in his organization, right? And let's look at all the ways we might look at the health of that organization. And then let's cut it by leaders. Oh, this leader has a lot of, hmm, a lot of turnover. This leader, wow, has had strong retention and actually he's promoted a lot of individuals. And in fact, has promoted a lot of women in the last five years. Interesting, right? So like, those are the ways in which like, I feel like you embed it versus saying, hey, there's something separate we're looking at. Of course, you're then looking to see if certain communities are disproportionately being impacted for whatever reason, or their insights that you can come up with. But I really want people to think about how do you look at it from the overall lens of what you're looking at for your organization? I think there's some good tools out there for that right now. I mean, I think of Doetic does a really nice job of that. And you can do it for like from a manager position, you know, permissioning, you know, Workday certainly can be configured in that way. I love a good real-time dashboard that shows me all of the data all of the time and then shows my leaders like it shouldn't be HR data like locked in a box somewhere and only the HR person has it, which I think is a problem. Certainly in the people space where we're like hoarding data and then we only share it when we want to share it. Like I was like, feel free, have a great day, real time. Here's your here's what your organization looks like. Drill on down. In fact, I'd rather them looking at it than me sitting in a corner sort of providing that data. But I think you're right. You have to look at this holistically. It's even better when it's embedded in the dashboard that you're looking at for how many customers are using my product. You know, what are my daily active users? What are my monthly, you know, like 
that's the, I love it when I can build those dashboards where you think of people just as much as you think of money and product and time. But I, I think very few workforces are actually that sophisticated, unfortunately. I would agree with that. And then also like looking at it on a quarterly basis. I mean, you don't need to be looking at it every day. You need to do the work. Like once you, the data is not changing that much unless you're restructuring, having layoffs, like look at it and see what you can gleam and then start working towards actions rather than like, oh, I need to refresh it again next. No, no, it's not going to change that much materially. Yeah. Well, I do think in some companies it might change that much. My, uh, I my, do think, I think for hourly workers in particular, where you do have high turnover and you want to depends. look by market. Yeah. Right. But, but I've also I agree, I agree with you. You have to look the, at it longitudinally. The data needs to be updated. I don't know if the exec suite makeup or VPN above is going to change that. Like, you know, some of the things they're going to stay that way for a bit. And then to your point, there are other parts of the org that are, have faster turnover. One of the things Colleen said in the past that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is in employee surveys, one of the things that usually comes up for a company that doesn't have a diverse leadership team is I want more diversity at the leadership level. And Colleen, correct me if I'm wrong, paraphrasing what you've said in the past, which is like, well, who do you want me to fire? And and so I, I wonder how you think about the long-term change of getting more diversity into leadership, given that not every company is hiring, especially in a moment like today, when in fact many companies are doing the exact opposite and specifically for leadership roles, I think right now there is a, there's constraint on how many leadership roles are currently available versus what we saw four or five years ago when everybody was hiring. The biggest problem I see is that people aren't meeting talent frequently enough leaders that were siloed into our own networks. And so when the CMO chief marketing officer role opens up, you're going to the person you work with in the last job or I'm going to call Nolan or Colleen and say, give me some recommendations versus I want a succession plan for this because there will be turnover. Particularly, I would say public company versus tech. Tech seems to have a bit more turnover in some of these roles. And so you you could do succession planning internally and you could say, I don't have a bench, but then you could say, you know, I have a CMO who started and I believe, you know, working with the chief people officer, this could be a two to three year tenure. So then who would we actually try to meet now? And that's the planning that's not happening. So it's a poor excuse and it's a bit of the bias, right? Because I've worked with both of you and I really like you. And I know that when these rules open up, I'm just going to slot you in versus taking the time to meet other people, particularly when there's not that time crunch. If there's not that time crunch, then you can just start to get to know talent. And you actually might meet me and say, I didn't actually have a job description in mind. But now I see this gap on the leadership team. And because I've met Mita without the constraints of like, here's her resume and here's the job description, I actually want her to meet more people at the company. And I think I want to create a role around this for her because it's a need for us. I, I think you've just like nailed that. You've nailed that like right on the head for me because like I think one of the primary leadership responsibilities is always be recruiting. And it's so easy to just fall into the category of like, well, I'm busy. I don't have a role open today. And I found personally that at every company I've worked at, we've done a terrible job at succession planning. It's never on the docket because succession planning only becomes a priority when there's an open role. I think companies are better about doing succession planning when you have lived through not having succession planning. Yeah, true. I mean, this true. is my true. <laughs> this is my old lady of having done this job for a super long time that I got really good at it later because I knew this is going to be a problem. You all don't want to think it, but people leave all the time for yes. reasons, you know, and I want to be prepared. And I, I'm a big believer in long-term succession planning too, which is like not just the who's the next seat, but who are the next five seats and how are we rotating people around? You know, I, I was fortunate or unfortunate, depending on which way you looked at it, to be acquired a couple of times. And then you go to these bigger companies and yeah, there are some companies that do a really great job of actually moving people around and giving them experiences. And that's how they keep great talent. You know, one of the best ways to grow people is to move them into jobs that are a little harder for them. They haven't done before, but I think that succession planning and getting smart about it only happens when you've lived through the, the problem area 
of not having had the person or no way having even thought of, oh, that person's gone. What do we do? Um, and then getting stuck to your point, Mita, in the, oh, well, I could go through a search, but that might take a long time. So why don't I just call so-and-so and and see who they know or who's available out there? Um, I, I think that trap is is very deep. I think it's a trap on the early side, too, when people start companies and they're just like, let me bring all my buddies in and, and who do you know? But there's there's also a shorthand that happens of like, well, I can trust these people. I know these people. So, you know, there's always a balancing act. But I, I completely agree that succession planning is a lost art on many people. Mita, one of the things that Colleen just hit on that I wanted to get your take on. So there's very clear data from McKinsey and others that diversity provides better business outcomes. I think that that data has generally been proven for established businesses There's other data that I've seen for earlier stage companies that say diversity might not be the best way or might cause more friction early on when companies are small. But I think like this is where the double-edged sword comes in because if you're not diversifying early, it's hard to catch up later on. And so I'm curious about your take of like really early company construction and how you think about the pros and cons of diversity at the earliest stages. Are you in it for the short term or the long term? That's the question. Like, what are you building the company for? So the gain short term might seem like, oh, this is really easy because I, guess what? I built a team of Mitas. They all look like me, act like me and think like me, right? And so everyone's just going to agree with each other. And so what are the things that we're going to miss? Because we're all going to be yes people. We're all going to come to consensus really, really quickly. The other thing I think about a lot now is that I could be working for Colleen and I could have diversity of representation on the team I'm leading. But Colleen's question should be, is Mita fit to lead? this team. So part of it is also we have leaders who aren't equipped to lead, particularly when there's diversity of thought, diversity of representation, perspectives that, you know, the hardest job of a leader is hearing something you're like, I didn't want to hear that. (laughs) Like, I thought it was a great idea. Now you're shooting it down. Like many leaders are not equipped for that. And so I guess the question I would ask is like, is it a short-term or a long-term play? Because if you then decide later on, you're trying to course correct, it becomes really painful, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons I was excited to join tech because having worked at very large public companies, there's scale. It's also hard to change things that have been in in process for a long time, where in tech, you have the ability to do that. For sure. I I think with early company construction right now, founders would say, I'm trying to survive. Like that is the soundbite right now in the founder chats that I'm currently in is like, I am trying to survive. And so that's where I'm asking the question is because it does feel like a it feels like a very hard moment to build a company today with capital more expensive. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I also equate it to is what I, what I have heard and seen and studied investors do with pattern matching. And so you are taking bets and investing on things that you know will do well based on a pattern of what you've seen, right? And that's a quick way to make decisions. It's similar to talent, but you are missing out on talent that could be solving problems faster could be innovating in ways that you didn't expect because you we have a lens of bias that we know what great looks like, right? It's the high, whole idea of meritocracy. Like I, I I know what good looks like, but that's defined on like meritocracy is my definition of what I think success looks like. And so that's the challenge, but it's difficult to convince people otherwise. Nolan, we should do a whole panel on this idea of meritocracy. You know, I, I want to talk about it now. I think it's bullshit. So Colleen hates this word. That like this is like Colleen's like word. least favorite. Oh, I word. triggered Colleen. Oh. I'm sorry, Colleen. <laughs> oh no, no, it's fine. I'm 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 very comfortable in the having this discussion over the years. <laughs> and so, like, okay, so because like right now, I think the false premise is it's like meritocracy or DEI. And I want to be very clear. I think that is a false premise, but that appears to be like what the narrative is right now online. Mm. It is. Let's call it what it is. Yeah. But I think meritocracy, although it is subjective, is what we should be striving for. 
do you, do you guys disagree with that? Or like, what is, what is your take on what a business should be optimizing for as it relates to performance? Well, one of the things I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion is one of the myths is I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Um, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. And I would ask, do we ever say I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? So it is based on your experiences and who you've had access to that you've created, whether you realize it in your mind, what you think good looks like. And so for me, my example is always, you know, I went to Duke for business school. And I remember joining my first very large public company as a marketer, and I was interviewing candidates, and I was told to do the following. You go to the second page of the resume, that was usually where the education section was. And if it wasn't a top 10 business school, you put it in a separate pile. And so that is meritocracy and that's gatekeeping in many ways because a meritocracy becomes a meritocracy, right? It's like a mirror image of what I think good looks like because it is about going to this school, having this degree, having, you know, whether it's in tech, if you're looking for a job, like you had to have had these kinds of experiences, but a person from a public company could never do that role. And so that's where you have to have the same language and same standards that you're judging people by. So for me, meritocracy often becomes a very vague term that can be loaded with personal bias if we're not clearly defining what it means at our company. I would have screened out that resume because I didn't think great talent uh, should have two-page resumes, but that's my own learned bias is like, you should make good decisions. You should know how to communicate those good, good decisions. And part of that is how you prioritize what's on your resume. But now you have LinkedIn, so you can feel free to have as many pages as you want. Yeah. I think what Nolan has probably heard me say a few times is I think managers do a shit job of anything that's outside of the stellar, stellar top talent, top performer, which you just know and see in the shit like the bad talent. These people are not performing. They're not doing the job. No one likes to work with them. Nothing gets done like that. There is this murky middle that is very undefined that I don't think managers do a good job of identifying or coaching. So I would say, yes, Nolan, there is a group of people that are phenomenal and game-changing and impactors on a company. And I think we are great at identifying those. And then I think the people who really need to be fired and should have been fired and we didn't fire them and we should get better at doing that real time and in the moment and giving that feedback and that coaching, that should happen. But the rest, I think there's a lot of data and a lot of information that in general, we don't set people up well for good or bad on that. And I don't think we're good at identifying it. And so that's where I think in the, you know, you just did a, a great podcast with somebody who is getting rid of like the recruiting process in a lot of ways, because, you know, how somebody shows up for five hours is not really very indicative of how well they're going to do in your environment and how they're going to show up. And then we make pay decisions based around that, which is why I threw a lot, you know, I've, I've innovated a lot on pay because it really has bothered me how that shit happens. And then I think there's so much in the middle for the 80%. That I just think that's why it's such a false dichotomy to say like we're a meritocracy or we're not a meritocracy. Like I just, I just don't believe it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it. I do think there is this great set of people and I do think a company should do everything they can to figure out what has made these people so great about our environment that makes them great. Like I was, I was getting great sort of results in my first tech job, like had the hardest school. I was a college recruiter. I had the hardest schools. I found the best people. I put points on the board. And yet I was getting like, oh, you're a nice, you know, like you're not nice enough here. Like you're not a nice enough team player. You're not approachable. All this shit. So I was getting all the results, but I wasn't nice. I go to another company. People loved the fact that I was just like, this is the way it should be done. I'm going to tell it like it is. We should just do our jobs, right? I pretty much did the same job at both companies, but one company penalized me for my temperament and personality. And the other one was like, you are a rock star. Now I define that as a cookie. Like this one team just wanted chocolate chip cookies and that's all they wanted. And I'm pretty much a peanut butter cookie who maybe people have an allergic reaction to. So I got to find a place that they want the peanut butter cookies. That's fine. So 
this is why I get all worked up about the meritocracy thing. Like, I just think there's so many things involved with it that we, we sort of suck at, 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 you know, making the right decisions. We just do. There we go, Nolan. (laughs) I think the thing that you both are saying is we do a terrible job at codifying what great looks like and then helping others build the skills that we have defined as great. Is that, is that what you guys are saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it actually goes back to Colleen's point on succession planning. Are we helping people understand what assignments they need so that they can get to the VP of product or CTO? Like, are we, are we telling them explicitly, are we coaching them and helping them? Or is it some sort of black box? I wish more people had done that for me earlier in my career and said, here are the experiences you need to curate. That's the one of the biggest gifts you can give people is to sit down and help them think about how, how do I do it? Or say, this is not going to happen for you here. Or this, or this is not. Exactly. Exactly. Like that's the yeah. other thing that Amen. I think companies do Amen, a, a crappy job yeah. of, of just being honest and saying like, you have hit the threshold here. Yes. It is not going to happen for you. Or also pulling people out who are not doing well at all levels. Like I'm now on the venture side. So I see a lot of companies. And one of the things I deal with the most is trying to tell people like that person is never going to be what you want them to be. They are warming the seat. And if you don't have the courage to pull them out, that's your call. But that's the tone that you have just set for your entire company. So if you want the rest of your management team to set goals, hold people accountable, give feedback, make decisions. It starts at the top. You have to do that. And you also be honest with them and just be like, it's not going to happen for you here. Like this isn't for you, but there may be another place where it's better. We just, we're not great at that. We suck at those things. And that's why people get frustrated and irritated. They feel like they've been lied to. um, And they have, they have been lied to. And it's, and, and so it's like, Colleen, why do we suck at that? Like, why why are we so afraid of being honest, especially with people on our team when we're talking about performance and we're talking about trajectory and we're talking about like I one of the things that used to come up all the time in employee surveys is career pathing, and everybody wants like a career path, but. I think what managers hear is like, I need to describe to them how they can get to this level. And sometimes managers don't believe that they can, but they're forced to come up with some sort of story about how they can get there. And so it becomes this like pageant bullshit that nobody is actually being honest with each other. And we're just very performative versus like candid and honest humans. And it just doesn't feel like it's rewarded in corporate America today. So I'm curious from both of your perspective is like, why is that the way that it is? Well, I think first of all, people are afraid. Americans in particular are afraid of hurting people's feelings. Uh, and this is why I don't like the word feedback. I think it's a, you know, when someone says like, Oh, you know, can I give you some feedback? That's like the worst line in the world. Like, no, I don't really want you to give me any feedback. And no, I don't want to hear that from you. Like, I like the word perspective or advice. I, you know, I have tried to soften this in a way to make it more approachable for people, but I think they're afraid of being disliked. I think that there is this performative, I'm expected to give them the answer or else they're not going to, you know, like me as a manager, or I'm not going to get a good, re- you know, review as a manager, those kinds of, whatever that sort of framework has been set up. And I think companies inherently have set up the wrong expectations for people. My last company, to get promoted, we were very clear that there were three things. And one of those three things was the next job had to exist, which meant there were a bunch of people who capped out because if the company wasn't growing, we had no reason for to have those other jobs. We didn't need 10 directors on a certain team. Like, it just didn't exist. And I just forced the conversation and said, like, if the job doesn't exist, there is no promotion for you. So you have to decide if you want to be here for this job or if you want to do something else, you, you know, build the skills and you should have that conversation. And I used to, you know, frame it for my own team and say, like, my job as a manager is to get you to your next job, but it may not be here. And that should be okay. 
Because that's the other thing is we spend all this time talking about retention and maybe people shouldn't be here. Like maybe the next, I would always be like, what is your next job? What are you interested in? And how can I help you get there? And like literally when I was ahead of people, I had people on my team who I thought would be really great chief people officers at other companies. And I would send them jobs and I would say like, do you want me to give your name to the recruiter? I think this would be an amazing job for you. I was totally fine with that. Even if it looks shitty for me, it's the best thing for them. And, you know, and it appreciated a lot of trust and respect in that way. But we don't talk about that. We don't measure that. We don't give credit for that. Like, that's my, that's my experience with it. I'm also, I don't really care if, you know, I'd rather just tell it like it is, but that's why I wasn't a great chocolate chip cookie. So, well, you're describing, (laughs) you're describing positive sum versus zero sum. And I think this is like, this is actually, it's such a great point, Colleen, of, I, I think a lot of leaders get caught in this, well, if I'm looking out for the employee, I'm not looking out for the business. And that's a false choice. And it's like, actually, if you look out for the employee and you tell them, hey, you've reached your ceiling here, there isn't another role for you. But that said, like, if you are looking to take the next step, I want to help you. That is a positive sum world in which I I firmly believe in karma of things coming back to you for helping that person. And it's just showing up down the line. It's just a longer term uh, perspective. And I think a lot of leaders get caught in this like, well, you report to me, you make my life easier. I don't want to lose you. There's like a little bit of this like ownership mentality. Oh, selfish. Yes, yes, yes. Totally. Like my life is better because you work for me and I don't have to deal with the shit that you have to deal with. And so I I just, I get into this world to where it's like, man, positive sum mentality, I feel like is a superpower that is not shared by many leaders in our world today. And it's in very short supply. Mita, what do you think? Sorry, I monopolized that. I get, you know, put me on a roll for a little while. (laughs) I think all the things you mentioned, people-pleasing, likability, not having the courage to have tough conversations, but also this old school way of thinking people aren't supposed to leave companies. We're supposed to hold on to them. Talent hoarders. I had somebody years ago who was on my team and he wasn't performing, had crossed lanes into this function and you could tell it was miserable. And so I just took him out to lunch one day and I said, you're meant to do great things. It's just not here. And so how can I help you? move on to what you're meant to do. And it was really interesting. He sent me a LinkedIn note last year to say, I, st- I want to thank you for that conversation because now he's meant to do what he's doing now, but it is that tough love. And sometimes the conversation we don't want to have. I love that. And it also just ends. And I do that. You know, I, I've also been in jobs that weren't a fit for me, right? You just know. And it's like, just give the person that lifeline right? I loved what Zappos used to do, which was like, you join and within six months, if you're not, I'm going to give you $10,000 or whatever the amount was to walk away. Like how much time and energy and money is saved by doing that? Oh, I'm a huge fan of that. Huge, huge fan of the opt out. Let me pay you to leave. Absolutely. Yes. Or if you would like to leave now, we will make that easy for you. Um, people are paranoid by that though. Anytime I say like, well, if you're doing a layoff, why don't you just do an opt out at the same time? All my best people will leave. I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. They could leave tomorrow too. You don't know that. I mean, I mean, really. It can leave anytime. Yeah. It's so interesting. We had one of my former managers told me a story about terminating an employee and it went terrible. Like it was an awful conversation. Three years later, He called my manager out of the blue and said, thank you for firing me. It was the best thing that ever happened in my life. And I think we get, uh, we get really attached to our identity at work. We get attached to our jobs because it becomes part of our lives. It becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of how we pay our bills. And especially in this moment today, which is very scary for a lot of people, um, you know, I, I think it does turn out that if you're not meant to be at a company, the faster that you get out of that company, the better off it is for the company and for the employee. And I think a lot, just a lot of managers need help having these conversations. 
And I think this is one of the primary roles of HR is to encourage managers to have these conversations and to help all of them grow in being more honest and direct with employees. Mita, I have a, I, I have a question for you. We did this diversity podcast a few weeks ago, and I made a comment where I said, I think if companies choose not to do diversity, fine, that's their choice. I think they just need to be honest with people. And then if that's not important to them, great, be honest, don't put, don't lie. And, and then people, employees can choose with their feet. They can leave. And I got some flack from some folks for saying that by saying, you know, not everybody is in a fortunate position to leave. Like not everybody can afford to quit, which I agree with. That was a fair commentary. I'm kind of curious. What do you think or what do you say on that space of, or, you know, do companies have to have diversity? Do they not have to have diversity? Is it a, my, my perspective is like, if you're going to say you do it, you should do it all the way and you got to do it right. And you have to make, and it's a long-term promise. And, you know, but I also like, look, if it's not a thing for you, you're not going to be important to you. Just don't lie about it. Like just be straight up with people and, and let people choose. But I, I, I think that feedback was fair and I'm, I'm trying to internalize it more as to like, how, how should I think that? Well, thanks for sharing so vulnerably. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, fake interviews, sham interviews, diversity dressing, canceled, canceled, canceled. Like you can have awesome marketing hype and beautiful Instagram feed and use images of people who actually don't work there and create a story that actually isn't the internal reality. And people will find that out quickly. I think the market will continue to bifurcate. We've seen what happened with Basecamp and Coinbase. One of those companies during the pandemic, the founders said, we're not going to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion anymore, social justice. This is not things that we're going to do. And they gave people a week and opt, opt in, as you would say, Colleen. And, third, and one of those companies, 30% of employees left. Not everyone can do that, but people need to know with their eyes wide open what they're getting into to be honest and fair and let people know this we stand for. I think it's just, uh, I think it's a business mistake not to think of inclusion as a competitive advantage, but that's your choice. But if you look at the statistics in the U.S. alone today, over 40% of individuals identify as non-white. That number is drastically changing, rapidly changing. We just talked about all the different dimensions of intersectionality when it comes to diversity, things you can visibly see and you can't see having those individuals in your workforce so they can go after business opportunities you didn't even know because that's not my lived experience, right? I very early on realized I didn't know many veterans and I thought, God, I have to change that. I don't understand that lived experience. And so like, if I don't understand that lived experience, how can I serve that population? I wouldn't be able to, not authentically at least. So I really hope that more people are thinking about that way. And so then we'll see five, 10 years from now who has decided that this isn't important and who has decided to double down and we'll see where they are. Yeah. That's a, it's a really great take actually, because it's like Colleen and I have talked about this in the past quite a bit, which is as long as you're clear about who you are, I take no issue. I take issue when you're full of shit and you lie to people. That's my problem is when you purport to be something that you actually are not, then you're lying to people. They're signing up for something that is not what you told them what they were getting into. And that is like my biggest no-no in today's world. And, and candidly, what I think is actually one of the things that's good about this environment and this time right now, which is like really tough for a lot of people. But one of the things that is good is like you're finally seeing true colors. And, you know, in over the course of the last five to 10 years, people just made up a bunch of shit and they made up a bunch of shit to go along with what was the only acceptable narrative. And now you're starting to see like, well, they actually didn't believe in those things. And so now you're starting to find true colors and to figure out how people are. But Mina, I love that take, which is like, we're not going to know for the next couple of years. Let's evaluate it again in five to 10 years and see who's more successful or not and look at business outcomes. And to your point in the book, which you talk about a lot, which is tying it to business outcomes. Absolutely. And I would say with Generation Z, and I know this has been over-talked about, but it is a generation entering the workforce has entered. They buy with their values. They work at places that feel like they're aligned to their values and they're very bold and unapologetic about it. And I don't, that's not creating, don't want to say that's a monolith because there's many individuals in that generation who don't feel that way. But whether it's Ernst & Young, Edelman Trust Barometer Survey, there's so much data that shows that 
this generation that's entering the workforce is challenging workplace norms in a way we haven't seen in a very long time. And so to think about how do you want to attract, retain, and develop that talent? And you could say, I actually don't care about that talent. And that's your choice, right? But you'll know that other people will care about that talent and will want to attract them. So that's the that's the assessment you have to make. Yeah. I, I want to end with this one, which is I want to talk about progress and progress that we've made. And I think there's a couple of different lenses that we can put on this. One lens is diversity statistics. Another lens is treatment and inclusion in the workplace. I've shared this story before. When I was eight years old, I got chicken pox. My mom was a paralegal and she stayed home because I had to stay home from daycare and she was fired. I don't think that that's happening to the degree that it was happening in the early 90s. I do think it's getting better. Historians are saying it's getting better. But when we look at the diversity data, especially in tech companies, it's essentially unchanged. What's your take on progress and how we're currently doing? Progress is slow. It is stalled. I mean, I could say all sorts of things. Uh, I will say that I'm a half glass full person. That's why I continue to do the work. You might have other people who come on the podcast and say, this is broken. Nothing's changed. I think certainly, yeah, I look at the trajectory of my own family, which is I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My uh, dad's mother was married when she was 12 years old. My mother's mother was married when she was 10 years old. They were both child brides, married to men in their 20s, had very large families and were extraordinary women. They were married off. They didn't have a choice. That's still happening in many parts of the world today. But I sit here on this podcast thinking, wow, in less than three generations, this is what gender equality looks like. Like I am the wildest dreams of my ancestors, right? So like my perspective is always going to come from a more positive place. But looking at the numbers, yes, there are leaders who are going to have to take more bold stances on, you know, who they want to be as a company, who they want to attract, and really whether or not they have fair and equitable processes. That's that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Like, if we're not sitting here, if we're sitting here now and like, this is the progress we've made, are we really treating everyone fairly and equitably in the workplace? That's what it comes down to, right? And so that's the question I would leave people with. I love it. Mina Malik, Colleen McCreary, thank you both so much for coming on the pod today. Thank you for having this discussion. I know this is not an easy discussion to have, but our audience is going to love it. And I can't thank you both for the time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mina. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.